Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G science fiction, fantasy, and historical radio for episode number one, two, three, eight, entitled uh, Miss S. Fisher. (laughs) (laughs) Our, Our podcast title is The Pods of War. So entitled Miss S. Fisher, and I know I'm going to stumble over that because we're talking about Kerry Greenwood's latest Fryn Fisher televisual spin-off, Miss S. And I am Rob Chan. And Megan McHugh. And here we are. From 1989 to the present day, Australian author Kerry Greenwood's Fryny Fisher. Fryny? Fryny? Finny? She could be a finny fish. <laughs> well, anyway, that historical murder mysteries, it spanned novels and short story collections. And from 2011, the books inspired the free season Australian television series, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, which was set in 1920s Melbourne. Oddly enough, a lot of it didn't look all that different from 2020s <laughs> Melbourne, I'm here to tell you. There was a feature film in 2020, which we did cover on the show, and a spin-off series set in the swinging space age yeah. 60s. Yeah. <laughs> all those op shops and vintage clothing boutiques, all very well and truly scoured for those. SBS On Demand is now screening a new adaptation of the stories, the 34-episode Chinese Mandarin period drama. It's a joint Beijing TV, Shanghai 99 visual company, Easy Entertainment and Penguin 10 Cent production. So a, a lot of hands there in the mix. And it is called Miss S. Now, you can stream the whole series on demand now, probably with a few less sibilant hisses, and it will be broadcast later this year on SBS Free to Air, which is a strange way of doing it when you think about it. Absolutely. I didn't realize they kind of did it back to front like that, although I was happy to see that it's all available for watching straight away. So that's really great. And I am glad it's still going to be on free to air because I think it's a lot to like here. Mm. It's set in the 1930s in Shanghai. So it's a bit later than the basic Miss Fisher uh, Mm -hmm. before the Japanese siege and occupation of the city in 1937, which I intuit by the fact that there's not air raids going on and attacks. Ah, I is so historical. Miss S takes its title from the first initial of the name of the brilliant and determinedly energetic female detective, Su Wen Li, played by Ma Yi Li. She's a Shanghai native herself, Ma Yi Li, and she has over 60 television series and movies to her credit, including Razor, a spy drama set in the 1930s during the war, and she was also one of the eponymous Seven Warriors in the 2004 comedy romance Waxia series, Seven Warriors. Now, Wenli, as Miss S, has just returned from years of travel abroad in Europe and other exotic foreign lands, well, to her, 
and has the breadth of experience to deal with multicultural crime in Shanghai's Bund, the prosperously bustling waterfront area bordering the Huangtu River upstream of China's east coast. From the 1860s to the 1930s, Shanghai was a wealthy centre of foreign trade and protected as a treaty port. Now, Ma Yi Li is, of course, not Essie Davis, but she puts her own stamp very firmly upon the role as a cheerfully ground and rule-breaking glamorous sleuth. Miss mm-hmm. S soon assembles her familiar posse of helpers, a lady's maid she rescues from a sticky situation, and two tracky and two taxi drivers and porters. Fans of Miss Fisher will immediately recognise the recast characters. Equally obvious is Gao Wei Guang as Lao Kuiheng. He's the Bund detective who is the Chinese equivalent of Nathan Page's detective inspector John Jack Robinson in the Oz series. He's another veteran. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another veteran with a string of small and big screen productions to his name. And he's the bloke you'd pick for any drama that requires a handsome but streetwise cop, or indeed the romantic male historical lead, who's an expert mm-hmm. swordsman or a sorcerer, or possibly both. I'm thinking of uh, Swords of Legend, which is a 2014 Chinese television series based on a famous role playing video game. Cool. So, yeah, he's the man. <laughs> So I've seen several episodes so far, watched it on um, SBS On Demand, which let me tell you is one of the most difficult free-to-air streaming (laughs) platforms to access. You have to (laughs) register and put in a code and have a password. I will say, though, the price is right. <laughs> so it is it is free. So that's what is great about this. Um, but, yeah, you can just access it using their free service. And like we said, they're all they're available to watch. I've knocked off, I think, a couple as well uh, just to get a bit of a sense of it. And, yeah, right away you can tell, like, the bones of the Miss Fisher vibe and energy is firmly there with a bit of extra location-specific flair on top and you know, the style and the fashion, it's all exactly what Miss Fisher would have been proud to see across the seas kind of, yeah, come to life in this new Chinese reboot, which I thought was actually pretty well done. Yeah, I was knocked out by it when I saw the first two episodes. I feel it's in that same sort of vein as the Murdoch Mysteries which is mm-hmm. set in um, turn of the century, you know, back then, <laughs> the 19th century, <laughs> um, in Toronto. So I feel like it, it is actually quite exotic in this really clever and almost inevitable way. It almost feels like you had to send it, set it in the Bund in Shanghai because you needed that multicultural East meets mm. West clash. I think as well um, what is clever is they talk a lot about, I mean, Miss S is a social, Miss Sue, she's a socialite and she's returned from abroad and I think they kind of use that as a way of explaining why she is a little less traditional and she's maybe got some of these Western more um, feisty ways of interacting with the people around her, I guess, and so kind of really bringing that out in her character and, um, yeah, also coming to grips with, you know, how that fits in but now that she's back in Shanghai as well. Yeah. As she says at one stage, East meets West, such a good fusion. <laughs> uh, she made, did you hear that joke that they made about Australian wine? No. <laughs> she says, she says, oh, it's a very good wine. It's a 20 year old wine from Australia. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> 
little nod to the origins of the series, I guess, as well, and our wine industry. Because I think the Australian production that produces in in Australia from the Miss Fisher series uh, worked on this with them. So there's oh, nice. sort of a bit of cross pollination going on there. Not that not that really uh, Chinese television needs any help with period drama television. No, because no. let me tell you, there are so many of those, and this is not all that different, really, from some of the time travel ones that they were doing. Mm, mm, absolutely, that sort of mystical female, yeah, kind of energy is is all very much here as well. Mm. In fact, it's a trope that we've seen in uh, South Korean drama and Japanese drama and in other Chinese dramas as well, Uh, as well as everywhere else in the known universe. Yeah. It just seems to be the thing. But, you know, it's fun seeing some of the the cultural differences, like where they would talk about a a group of ladies meeting to play whist or bridge. Here it's mahjong. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and they all laugh at that because they they all know that they're fiercely addicted, (laughs) you know. And there's some flapper outfits that are very much um, with a bit of detailing in sort of a more Chinese traditional neckline and things like that. And, yeah, I def- I agree. I think this is – I didn't really expect that this would be something that would exist, but you can tell even just from the credits, uh, the opening credits, that, yeah, they're really firmly trying to get that same spirit. And I think they do a really nice job. I think it is maybe a little bit more traditional in its – interact you know the relationships it's portraying and so on I mean I think I guess Miss Fisher could be a little more daring and a little bit more controversial with some of the uh storylines and some of the character elements and things like that whereas I think this is a little bit more mainstream mm-hmm. you know as much as a murder mystery uh show can be <laughs> in terms yeah, of still, BG, PG no, I mean, there's a lot of these shows there's a lot of these shows around at the moment where we've got uh female detectives set in period sort of Mm-hmm. Um, scenarios. Uh, there was um, uh, the Frankie Drake murder mysteries, which are spin-off of the murder, uh, the Murdoch mysteries, like set um, a few years later in the twenties. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, there was that uh, Victorian one we were discussing recently. Yeah, uh, Miss Scarlet and the Duke. Yeah, yeah. So there's a few of them around. Uh, this one does stand out. I think that, as we we're saying before, setting it in the Bund is is amazing and. In that way that you have in Chinese period dramas, everything is absolutely brightly painted. It's so oversaturated, isn't it? It's really bright and vivid and oh, even the costumes and sets, they're, they're beautiful. And they're extraordinarily detailed. I was looking at the beadwork on some of Miss mm. S's costumes, her evening gowns and stuff, and it's just outrageous. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, I do find that the subtitles on this are occasionally a bit off. Agree, agree. Yeah, I, I think I thought that as well, that they're not quite where they could be, but uh, it doesn't detract from the experience, I don't think. Well, if you're used to watching Waxia movies from the 1970s, you'll actually find that a bit of fun. Comforting, yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of Waxia, there is a bit of hyperkinetic fighting that goes on in some of the episodes. Nice, bit of action. Uh, yeah, and I thought that was kind of cool. And there is some, you know, I'm looking, it's a Chinese drama. You know that there's going to be some uh, mainstream, mainland political commentary going on there. And there is, but you know what? Actually, it's justified. I was thinking about it. Um, one of the, uh, there's a male ballet dancer and he's a bit miffed about, um, because he's been on tour over in the West and he's a bit miffed about Westerners not accepting the Chinese mm-hmm. in Western style ballet. And he's right. Mm. You know, there was quite a bit of racism at the time. 
Uh, and today. Yeah, not to put it too fine, fine a point on it. It's entirely true. Uh, mm. So, yeah, there are, there are occasional bits like that, but less than I would have thought. But obviously it's in context to the time. You can't deny yeah. that. Anyway, uh, leaving that aside, it's got a very strong sense of time and place uh, with the costumes, the sets, uh, which they do seem to recycle a few times. <laughs> but, but then you're going to have to, you know, they have their um, Rip and Lee and uh, Como House and, and the other historical places as well. So they've used those to, to great advantage and, They've used a fair bit of CGI for the expansive shots, just like Murdoch Mysteries has to do for period Toronto. Um, I don't think we had as many shots like that in Miss Fisher. I don't recall a lot of that. Mm. But that's all right. It's a different show. Um, I'd be fascinated to know how it plays in China. I was very interested in the reception as well. I, I wonder about where the demand for this show came from, if it was something that, audiences were interested in seeing and so that's where or you know yeah how it's been received so I mean it's it's tricky to find info like that I guess yeah, for I, us. <laughs> I actually did find this one hard to research um obviously there are there are Chinese websites but I don't read Mandarin so and the translations on we the, hit a bit of a wall on that one yeah we, we, we actually did um I I kept wondering what because I don't remember the Miss Fisher episodes chapter and verse i'm not Mm-mm-mm. i'm not a, i'm not not that kind of a fan of miss fisher i just yeah. love to just appreciate yeah watch an episode here and there so i'm not it's great for that yeah i'm not steeped in it so i don't know exactly how closely they are following the episodes that we saw yeah because of course I, they're filtered through the screenwriter's adaptation to the original stories yeah, I would think that you'd want to maybe do something a little bit new and fresh and maybe take advantage of the new location as well and do something a bit in keeping with that. Mm. That's one of my key things too. Like I need to watch more of it and see whether the mysteries hold up because that's one of the key things for me. If the actual core mystery is at least solid, that's great. And I think everything else, like, you know, it can be beautiful and great relationship building, but if I'm here to watch some murder mystery stuff, you want to have that on lock. So I did see most of them. They all seem to be two-part, so the, the part one and part two of each mystery, and the titles sound pretty cool, so we'll see. Uh, I'm the same as you, Rob. I appreciate a bit of Miss Fisher, but I'm not a hard died in the wool fan. I think it's a really great series, and I love the following it has, but I'm not familiar with all of the, the stories that they played out in that series. So, yeah, I'm also interested to see. Uh, I might even bounce around a bit and maybe look at a later episode, you know, a later mystery, just pick the ones that sound cool because they all are, they're all there. So, but I wonder if I'd miss out on any ongoing storylines or anything like that. But yeah, I think this one is definitely one to give a bit of a go if you're a Miss Fisher fan or not. And I would say if you are a fan, you probably find a lot to appreciate here. You know, it might be fun to actually, if one of them is, absolutely identifiable as a as an adaptation of it, mm. one that there's an episode of in the Australian one. It would be kind of fun to, to um, double play them and just watch each yeah. one in succession and see how they differ. Like Maybe in, um, we should look into it. We'll have a look into it. There's a moment when Miss S is walking around a chalk outline. The corpse, of course, has been removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do wonder whether or not she she skips lightly over it without actually treading within the outline. And I wonder, is that a 
is that a particularly cultural thing or is it a universal thing that you do out of you don't want to walk in a dead man's outline? Yeah. Or is it just um, respect for a crime scene? I actually didn't have that much respect for that crime scene. As she says laconically in one scene, I'm wearing gloves. (laughs) (laughs) So there is those, yeah, it's it's fun. I Yeah. Yeah. I think that that there's plenty of fun to be had here and and that's the way to take it too lightly. I think this is not a historical drama. It's a fun murder mystery adaptation, so I'm keen to see what they do with it. Thinking of the first episode, the moment she steps off a boat, she steps off the boat literally into a murder mystery of some sort. <laughs> they don't waste time, yeah. But, but that's what's great though. But she gets involved in a drug bust right right off the boat. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like she hasn't even had a luggage collected to take to take home yet. But that's the joy of it—that curiosity. That oh, I'll just peer over here and see what's going on. And I think that is the core of of that character, which of of who she is emulating, really. So I thought that was pretty fitting. <laughs> and the Bund detective—he's just as uh, he's just as startled as Jack was when Miss Fisher started interfering in his cases. Maybe a little bit more. Um, polite about it, I guess. (laughs) Well, he hasn't arrested her yet. (laughs) No, not yet, but we've got to watch more, don't we? I'm told told that the the detective is a bit of a foodie in the show, so that'll that'll offer some interesting opportunities for flirtation, I'm sure. Be good to see some of the cuisine and stuff if they're going to feature a bit of food, and I like those cultural elements. I think that could be great to see. Yeah, well, you know, one of the the clashes between civilizations here is real, uh, and his, and of um, of great historical importance. At one stage, Miss Fisher's talking about um, not wearing Western clothing, Mm-mm. but of course, you can do this quite easily in the Bund because it's that big, you know, multicultural uh, trade area. So. I find that very fascinating. Actually, I'd like to see a lot more of this period outside of this series too. I started looking up some historical footage Mm-mm-mm. from the twenties and that just looking at the at the amazing spread of of great buildings along the river. Yeah, and what an interesting area that must have been. Uh, I haven't seen as many shows or movies set in Shanghai in that period as I would like to. Yeah. Um, but I'm definitely going to chase down some more. So I'll try and find a list on Wikipedia of <laughs> um, what do they usually have it under? Popular culture and Shanghai or something like that. Yeah, Shanghai there'll be a listicle for you somewhere. <laughs> yeah, because I, I feel very drawn to it for some reason. Maybe it's my ancestral roots calling to me from China. Maybe, yeah, maybe. probably not the best time and place to uh, have that happen from, though. <laughs> pre-war Shanghai, but in a way, that's that's very much like um, uh, pre-war Berlin in some, mm. in some respects. Yeah, so they've got that kind of mixture going on there. But I was fascinated by it, and I might actually watch a few more episodes, even though look, it's not not technically got any um, vampires. <laughs> No, not technically or metaphorically. Or, you see, this is or mad scientists or monsters or or at least not, uh, you know, monster monsters. Plenty of human monsters in it, I'm sure. But the thing that draws me to the Murdoch mysteries mm-hmm. is that um, uh, science fictional element. Maybe not so much this. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going for a good historical detective series anyway. So it's Miss S. 
34 episodes all there ready and waiting for you on SBS On Demand. It will air on free-to-air SBS later in the year. Uh, it is in Mandarin, but there are English subtitles. So if, you want, if you're up for another long-term smouldering romance between two outrageously beautiful and handsome leads, because they are, mm-hmm. aren't they? You know? Yeah, 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 <laughs> uh, for sure. You know, Miss S's face is so immaculately made up, you would almost swear she was an, an anime character. She just and the outfits. Oh God, the costumes! And yeah. because it's because it's um, Shanghai, the male costumes are incredible. Yeah, you know, like they are really sharp. They're so cool. Oh, and music-wise, uh, there is a lot of um, music that they're kind of skewed towards mm. that time, as well mm. as some period pieces. But mm-hmm. but I think they're actually playing a lot more fast and loose with the music than Miss Fisher was, quite definitely in um, in the background music, mm-hmm. uh, not so much in the theme and uh, other pieces. I haven't yet been able to find the soundtrack for it, but I did uh, decide to go with a track called Shanghai Shuffle, which actually is from 1934 from an album called Limehouse Blues, obviously from uh, London. Limehouse uh, with the uh, the Chinese section of the city. And this is by Fletcher Henderson and his orchestra. So I thought we'd go with some music that was in period to celebrate the binge-worthy drop of Miss S on SBS On Demand. And that's enough sibilance for me today. In the marmalade forest, forest. Between the make-believe trees G'day, I'm Brent McKenzie. I played an in elf from Lord of the Rings. My dad played Ellen Dolby King. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R, and I have one thing to say. My name is Figwit the Elf. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Shanghai Shuffle. Doesn't sound too shuffly to me. <laughs> now, that's a, a, a jazz standard from the 1920s, 1924, originally recorded. That particular one comes from 1934. And it's Fletcher Henderson and his orchestra from the album Limehouse Blues. And I think in the original actually featured Louis Armstrong. Hmm. So that's, that's to uh, celebrate Miss S, <laughs> the Chinese adaptation of the Franny Fisher novels and television show as well. All right. Now we have some sadder news to discuss. Yes. So I thought we'd move on to, uh, a very recent piece of sad news, but also let's use it as a chance to remember and celebrate. So Christopher Plummer, beloved actor, uh, did pass away. So he died on February the 5th and he was 91 years old. So that's a very, as they say, very good innings. And uh, he died peacefully at home, surrounded by his loved ones. Thus, he exited a very long and um amazing career on on earth uh, so he was born in toronto actually so he's canadian which i didn't know and uh he did grow up in a city in quebec and and so on and so he was born arthur christopher or may plumber which i thought was a pretty cool name and he's actually related to the third ever prime minister of canada <laughs> So there you go. And he's the father of Amanda Plummer. So she's a performer as well and has a couple of Tonys under her belt. Uh, So Christopher Plummer was also, he's just 
been covered in a lot of Canadian honours and medals from the Queen and very well recognised and so on and has really had a lifelong interest and involvement in the arts and has been involved in a lot of different committees and um, so on and so forth and has been described by people who know him as someone who was full of humour and class and just really wonderful person to work with. So a lot of the tributes have been flowing from people who've worked with him and admired him and so on. So plenty of his work to look back on as well and and reflect and remember and a couple of things that I'm interested to rewatch as well. Uh, but let's so let's talk a little bit about his films and career. So he did start in theatre, as many do, and he's also in his time as well as doing films and TV, done a lot of voiceover work, which we'll discuss, and a bit of composing, which I thought was pretty cool as well. So he's, yeah, so he's worked on different compositions of known known works already and had them performed and so on. So he's a man of many talents and yeah, has had a really long career that spanned many decades. He's been in over 100 films. And so I think one of the things when I was reading up on him that really stood out, which I could think back and really reflect on and go, yeah, that really rings true. He's been in so many films because he often will gravitate towards a supporting role. And so all of his Oscar noms, I'm pretty sure, have been for supporting actors. He likes these supporting character roles because he said they were a bit more meaty, more to do, and he actually wanted those over. He could have played leading man roles, certainly, And he has had a few in his history, of course, but often he will play someone, you know, adjacent to the leading man and and such. So I thought that was interesting. And thinking back, I was like, yeah, he has been in a lot of really great stuff and usually is sort of a character that's gravitating around or something like that. So, So I thought that was very interesting to reflect on. So he... He has sort of had a resurgence in his career as well as an older actor. So a lot of people do know him for roles that he's played since he was over 70. And he is the currently the oldest actor. So at the time of his win was the oldest actor to win an Oscar. And that was in 2012. He received that for Best Supporting Actor for the film Beginners, which is a lovely drama with Ewan McGregor in it as well. And he was 82 at the time. So he just pipped, I think it was Jessica Tandy, who was 80 when she got hers. And so he's currently now holds that honour. And, yeah, all of his noms, he's been he's been an older gentleman when he received a lot of those. So he's really sort of flourished in his later years. He's got Tonys, he's got Emmys, he's got an Oscar, the one I mentioned, and a couple of other nominations but sadly not wins. And so when I saw that, I was like, does he have an EGOT, which is famously the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar and Tony Award combo. But sadly, he just misses out. He was nominated for a Grammy way back in the 70s. Very close, but not a win. So he's not an EGOT holder. I think Whoopi Goldberg is maybe the one and only EGOT. Not have to fact check myself, but so he doesn't quite have the full four, but you know, definitely won't dispute that he is a very well-respected, amazing performer who has been, yeah, in all these different areas of music and TV and honoured in all these different different realms. So let's have a look at some of the stuff that he's done. So I think one of his most well-known roles, obviously, is Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. Now, this is where I also reveal that I've never seen The Sound of Music. <laughs> I know roughly what it's about and I know that that's an important character. (laughs) Uh, So that's not where I know him from, but. It's the other uh, musical about singing Nazis. 
Yeah, exactly. The more family-friendly one, I guess, if there ever is such a thing. Uh, but he actually for a long time thought that role was a bit humorless and didn't love that character. And so he used to call it like S&M and the sound of mucus and things. But later he did say, no, he came to appreciate it and could see why it was so beloved. Uh, and it was always a bit tongue-in-cheek when he was kind of making fun of it. So Didn't they dub him in that, the singing? <laughs> no, he did sing. He did sing? I, I yeah, yeah, he did sing, and he's done a bit of singing in his time. It was his first singing role, I think, from what I read. But um, he's obviously been around the block and done a lot of Shakespeare. So, as you know, someone of his creed is want to do. So he's been Hamlet. He's done Iago. He's also done Othello, Prospero, Henry V, and a King Lear as well. So he's he's sort of you know got the decent stable of Shakespeare characters under his. Belt. Yes, he certainly encompassed all of the animals in the bard yard. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And in fact, he was in a Hamlet performance in the 60s with Michael Caine. And in, um, he's also sort of went to, because William Shatner is also Canadian, as we know, they overlapped a little bit and had met each other in their youth and worked in some of the same theatres and so on. And obviously, we'll talk later, they worked again later. They both, I think there was, um, Plummer was playing Henry V and then he couldn't go on. And so his understudy, William Shatner, took to the stage instead. And so, you know, Thus, two great careers were born and a friendship, I like to think. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, they all kind of revolve around and know each other. And a couple of the other notable things that he did in the 70s or in his early years, I guess you'd say, although he was old by then, um, he was in, he played Sherlock. So this was one you mentioned, Rob, that was close to your heart, which, look, I'm going to be honest, I hadn't ever heard of this one. It's called Murder by Decree. Mm. So it was in 1979 and he played Sherlock in that. Is that one that you have fond memories of? or? Oh, yeah, that's that's one of the touchstones for Sherlock on the screen. It's it's an important one in the in the whole canon mm-hmm. of these sorts of movies and the, the franchise that is Sherlock Holmes in itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely worth a watch. It's, there's a lot of scenery and chewing in that one. Ah, excellent. <laughs> I, I'm not against that. <laughs> no. Actually, you should be watching more um, Sherlock Holmes because yeah. the procedural in it is is usually quite fascinating. Anyway. And it's always got to be up to a certain standard, I think, to to meet the, the Conan Doyle uh, yeah, standards. So, he was also in The Return of the Pink Panther and he was in uh, a Stephen King adaptation, which I thought was interesting. He was in Dolores Claiborne, which I've not seen, and 12 Monkeys, sci-fi, Brad Pitt, Weird Eye, so on. And he's also, <laughs> I didn't know this, but he's the voiceover narrator in a lot of the Madeline stuff. So oh, I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with yeah. yeah, Madeline, famous French uh, schoolgirl. So, yes, he's done a lot of Madeline stuff. Um for many, many years. So I didn't realise that was him. So that's I thought that was really interesting. Uh, and then, yeah, so let's move into some of the work that he's done that we could maybe put under the umbrella of slightly more contemporary. So a lot of the kind of stuff that was going on in, I want to say, like 90s, 2000s, teens. Uh, so he was in Dracula 2000. He was in Up. He was a voice in Up. He was in Nine, which is an animated science fiction kind of Tim Burton produced thing. Uh, he was in Alexander, the Colin Farrell Alexander the Great. You know when they went through that phase of doing all the 
the myths and legends and, and doing big blockbusters about them. So he was in Alexander. He was in the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, National Treasure, <laughs> and uh, also uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the Fincher adaptation. He was in that as well. But one I think we wanted to talk more about, which you had mentioned, um, Rob, of course, was that he would his turn as a Klingon in Star Trek VI, Ooh. The Undiscovered Country. I was trying to think back about whether I have actually seen this one. So refresh me on on that one. Well, that's um, well-known uh, Sherlock Holmes adaptation director, Nicholas Meyer, who did two Star Trek films, the mm-hmm. first one being The Wrath of Khan, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is one of the universally acclaimed Star Trek movies. And the second one is Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, which is a line from Hamlet, not Star Trek's, not Star Trek VI, but Death, The Undiscovered Country. Mm-hmm, uh, Christopher mm-hmm. Plummer plays General Chang, yes. a war-obsessed Klingon general who mm-hmm. decides, spoiler, <laughs> <laughs> who, who does, I think we're cool. It was, it's been 20, 30 years. Yeah. Or it might be a couple of hundred years until it happens. It is Star Trek after all. Uh, and his character of General Chang had this, he didn't have too much Klingon makeup, so he didn't have the full mm. crest on his yeah. head. He mm. had some bumps. But the great thing was that he had an eye patch and the eye patch was riveted to his face. <laughs> you know, so that was just essentially cool but his his gimmick was that he liked to quote shakespeare as a klingon ah i like that and as he said to kirk you have not heard shakespeare until you've heard it in the original klingon <laughs> oh of course yes i know that yeah 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 <laughs> a, nice a, a lovely bit of uh, klingon cultural imperialism there <laughs> and who knows again it's star trek it might have actually been accurate for all i know <laughs> Oh, dear. So, okay, um, yes, he comes to a sticky end, but he dies fighting as all Klingons tend to do in these things. Nice. Uh, and he's a great adversary for Kirk. In fact, I think he's one of the best Klingons to face off against Kirk in uh, these movies. And, of course, um, there is a David Bowie connection to Star Trek VI, as we've mentioned before. Bowie's wife, Iman, was mm, in Star Trek VI, yeah. But that's not what I'm going to pursue at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> He did also do the voice in some games that came out, Star Trek Klingon Academy and Star Trek Starfleet Academy as well. And he was also a voice in Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. So I thought that was kind of cool that he's done a few video game voices as well. Uh, so, yeah, and then I think uh, a couple of other notable mentions, he got an, an Oscar nomination for his role in The Last Station. So he plays Tolstoy in that. And most recently, of course, uh, we cover this on Zero G, a lot of love for this film, mm. Knives Out. So he plays the patriarch in another great murder mystery, actually. Uh, if you haven't seen Knives Out, so good. I think we did like, we almost talked for like an hour about that, I think, Rob, when we covered it because we liked it so much. Uh, and I'm, I'm considering doing a rewatch, in fact, but that was one of his more recent later roles. And uh, another one that I thought was interesting that just shout out, it's not genre, but I thought this was an interesting one. He in 2017 was in a movie called All the Money in the World, which was his third Oscar nomination. And he replaced Kevin Spacey weeks before they were going to release the film because of the controversy around Spacey. 
Oh. And the sexual assault and so on. And so the, they replaced Spacey with Plummer. Plummer received a lot of accolades for the role. Uh, I think it was, yeah, it was a few weeks and they did all these reshoots. And that also stemmed, there was a lot of discussion around the disparity between what Michelle Williams was getting paid for reshoots and what Mark Wahlberg was getting paid for reshoots. So that film was riddled with a lot of controversy. But yes, yeah, so he stepped in last minute did a fantastic job and people loved his performance. And he was 88 at that time as well. So um, this, yeah, so a couple, only a couple of years ago. And he did turn down Gandalf oh. in The Lord of the Rings. Oh. <laughs> he would have been a great game. I mean, yeah. McKellen is fab, but Plummer would have been a great Gandalf as well. And I think he did say, you know, I wish I'd taken it. It would have been great. But I would take, I mean, yeah. Plumwood and fantastic. Obviously, McKellen was fantastic. So you know, it's always it's a win win. Um, they're, they're all they're all interchangeable. These great Shakespearean loveys. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so yeah, I think that was kind of um, the the bit of a rundown. I do have a little quote from his manager, who was also a close friend, about him. So I thought I would just read that out because I thought it rounded it up quite nicely. And from what I'd been sort of looking into his history, it seems very apt. So the quote is, uh, Chris was an extraordinary man who deeply loved and respected his profession with great old-fashioned manners, self-deprecating humour and the music of words. He was a national treasure who deeply relished his Canadian roots. Through his art and humanity, he touched all of our hearts and his legendary life will endure for all generations to come. So, yeah, Christopher Plummer. Um I think a good opportunity to maybe revisit some of his his stuff. I might check out that Sherlock Holmes adaptation, mm. and yeah, I think uh, celebrate a lot of really great great work that he's given us. Well, as General Chang in Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country, he constantly quotes Shakespeare, much to the annoyance of Doctor McCoy. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that he quotes are some lines from Henry V, uh, and this is. Where his compositional talents came in, I believe, he got together with Sir William Walton, who, if memory serves me, uh, was the composer for one of um, Christopher Plummer's seminal sort of films that got him on the road to Shakespeare, which was um, Laurence Olivier's Henry V. And so Sir William Walton was the composer for that. So he got together with um, Sir Neville Mariner. Uh, on, and there's an album called The Chandos Sound Experience, which has Christopher Plummer reading from Shakespeare and uh, some great music as well. But this is just the track where he does um, Henry V before the town of Harfleur, the castle. And, you know, it's that whole once more into the breach as he's taking the castle. Uh, and he just does it full on. So I like to think of General Chang sitting there before the gates of some enemy <laughs> fortress. <laughs> Hi, I'm George Takei, and I play Admiral Sulu in Star Trek. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G. Admiral? Hey, a guy can dream, can't he? (laughs) Yeah, Christopher Plummer there. With Sir Neville Mariner, with some music by Sir William Walton, Henry V, the Siege at Harfleur from the Chandos Sound Experience album. Cry havoc and let's slip the podcast of war from Zero G here today. Rob, Jan, and Megan McHugh. Here we're just paying tribute to the late great Christopher Plummer, mm-hmm. star of so many movies, dodgy doctor in a whole lot of genre productions, including Vampire in Venice, 
And we mentioned that he played Van Helsing in uh, Dracula 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also the voice of Dr. West in Howard Lovecraft and the Frozen Kingdom and all three of the Lovecraft animated films. What, they say? Lovecraft animated films? Yeah, there's some very odd kids' films. <laughs> well worth checking out. Last time I saw them, I think they were on SBS on, on demand. <laughs> also in Wolf, the Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer. <gasps> Vehicle. Oh, I missed that one. Oh, gosh, I forgot that movie existed. 12 Monkeys. He's a yes. doctor in that, dodgy doctor in that. And he was the <laughs> really scene-chewing villain in Star Crash in 1979 playing the Emperor. <laughs> that was a performance. <laughs> <laughs> Not, he's done it all. Yeah, he's done it all. All right, now from Christopher Plummer, a great thespian, to a really gentle television show. So if you're after something that's dotty and British and eccentric. Always. (laughs) It's actually almost, it is a cliche and, you know, I actually kind of feel a bit sorry about peddling the stereotype. (laughs) On Netflix, detectorists. Not the detectors, but detectorists. That's what the hobbyists Mm -hmm. insist on being called, which is a, a British television comedy series. Came out in 2014 written and directed by Mackenzie Crook. There are three seasons and 19 episodes, which is um, not a bad little trot. I've watched oh, half a dozen or so of them. Perfectly satisfied with it. This is such a low-pitch, enjoyable show. And I mention it really because it's a geek show. It's about two metal detectorists and the club that they come from, the Danebury Metal Detecting Club, all seven or six members of it. <laughs> And, boy, if you've ever been in any kind of geek club, <laughs> you will rec- you'll, you'll recognise you'll recognize it. Uh, or any club, really. You'll recognise the uh, the local town or church hall with its little, um, its little window where you've got a kitchen that people provide refreshments from, a little table where you sign in and, they've, you know, there's – they, they they collect their dues. Uh, there's some office politics and club politics involved. But it's just a charming show starring the creator Mackenzie Crook playing Andy Stone. Now, he's um, he's trying to qualify as an archaeologist. It's taking him a very long time. Uh, <laughs> in fact, geological age is just about. But in the day, he's got um, a, a variety of other jobs that he does for an, a, a labour agency. So not that flash. But he's keen, like everybody in this. We know him, of course, speaking of keen, as Gareth Keenan from The Office. And as, of course. And as Raggetti in the Pirates of the Caribbean films, that very scrofulous-looking pirate with the, uh, the, the, the eye that he can pop out on demand. He was Aurel in the um, Game of Thrones series, and he is the, the title character in Wurzel Gummidge, the new remake of the old John Pertwee series. And here he is starring in this alongside Toby Jones, who's Lance Stater, who's a, a forklift truck driver and amateur musician. <laughs> <laughs> and look, we know him, Toby Jones, from practically everything uh, The Mist in 2007, uh, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy in 11, Barbarian Sound Studio, The Hunger mm-hmm. Games. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. He's the voice of Dobby in the Harry Potter films. Oh, I didn't realise that. Yeah. And most importantly, Arnim Zola. 
in the MCU films, Captain America, the first adventure, uh, Avenger, and Captain America, the Winter Soldier. We've also seen him in Doctor Who. and Well, he's been around in so many different things. He qualifies as ubiquitous, good old Tony jo- Toby Jones. Uh, and The Detectorist is just one of those lovely tone shows that I could, I could watch and indeed watch as my sitcom of the moment. Mm-hmm. Being mm-hmm. British, it won't last that long, so it is a moment. <laughs> yeah. Watch out also for Lucy Benjamin uh, playing a character called Maggie, who's Lance's ex-wife. She's um, in charge of a new age supplies shop, sort of like um, the magic box in, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> but not quite, you know. Uh, but we first saw her back in 83 where she played a young version of Nyssa in the episode Mordron Undead. She was also in the uh, the Jupiter Moon uh, science fiction soap opera TV series in the 1990s. Uh, moving along to the other person I really wanted to mention, Rachel Sterling playing Andy's girlfriend. Uh, now she is, uh, she probably would hate this. Let's let's start out with what I've seen her in. She was in the 2013 episode of Doctor Who, The Crimson Horror, which is a historical sort of murder mystery. Uh, alongside, yes, her mother, the woman she refers to as the mothership, Diana Rigg. Ah. And my God. When you look at her, she is a ringer for the rigger. <laughs> she is amazing. And I, look, it's a, it's a thing to be saddled with, the looks of your parent like that. I don't think it's all that tragic, really, when you think about it. <laughs> she distinguished herself in the glorious BBC drama Tipping the Velvet, and she was also in the Bletchley Circle. But, you know, I mean, when you, you look at her and she's got those – those famous cheeks uh, and those bones that that define her face and the eyes that she can give that merry little sort of cynical twinkle from, it is actually really kind of odd. But Mm -hmm. I'm trying to watch her as herself in this, which is not easy because her mum shows up as her mother and occasional childminder when that happens. Oh, there's a spoiler. Oh, well. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, all of the drama of metal detecting <laughs> <laughs> plays out in this show. The moment when they find a series of matchbox cars mm. and not Anglo-Saxon treasure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the moment when a young local history student appears in the club and wants to join and sets everyone's hearts aflutter, including Andy's partner and there are some moments of comic timing in this that i thought were absolutely perfect anyway <laughs> so uh they've got rival detectorists who the our, our pair refer to as simon and garfunkel because they look a little bit like them <laughs> and every they all wear camouflage too they're twonks basically they wear camouflage to trick the predators that might be chasing them <laughs> and you know They've not had a fatality in the club for nearly three years, thanks to their occupational health and safety record. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually no joke because you can come across unexploded munitions in, in England quite yeah. easily. Uh, so that actually does does feature in the uh, in the story, as do their songwriting talents and their karaoke. <laughs> uh, what do they call it? Open mic session at the local pub. Uh, look. It is just a fun show. It's very gentle. Um, the lines are sharp and witty, and it, it joins a long string of 
British sitcoms that that are more eccentric and and potty, uh, especially you know it's metal detecting. They're not necessarily well thought of by real archaeologists from Time Team, and they are actually trying to get um, Sir Tony Robinson to be their uh, patron. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I, I've got to watch the rest of this, and I will. It's um my new sitcom of the moment. It's de- it's Detectorists. It's on Netflix, and. That's about it for Zero G today, I believe. Yes, it is. Yeah. And I could get the Bowie connection easily here because John or Johnny Flynn uh, wrote the the uh, the theme for the series, The Detectorist, which we'll play in a second. But he played David Bowie in the film Stardust. Ah. Yeah. Not the um, not the Neil Gaiman movie, but that uh, recent. Um, fairly uh, dudded out um, biopic that they did. Mm. Mm. But there you go. There's our Bowie connection for today. Easily in one swell foop as we mm-hmm. go out from Zero G today and leaving for Joe Brunatic to come up next with Astral Glamour. And this is Detectorists. Thank you to our podcaster, Kayla Larson. And thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.